During the weeks of Lent, we are looking at the greatest commandments that, uh, as we heard from the reading from Mark, to love God and to love neighbor. And as we do, we're reflecting on some, uh, a thought from the author Andy Crouch that we are uh, heart, soul, mind, strength complexes designed for love. So today we're looking at what it means to love God with all of our soul. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our second reading is from Psalm 139. Let us listen together for God's word to us. O Lord, you have searched me and known me, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! I try to count them. They are more than sand. I come to the end. I am still with you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mrs. Ruby Turpin is the protagonist of Flannery O'Connor's short story called Revelation. O'Connor's work is set in the Jim Crow South of the mid-20th century, And Mrs. Turpin is thankful. She's a thankful woman, thankful that God has given her a little bit of everything that she needs in life because she knows that it could have been otherwise, that God might not have given her a little bit of everything that she needs. She is thankful that God has given her the wisdom to know what to do with the things that God has given her in this life because she knows that God might not have made her as wise as she is, she is grateful that God has made her herself because she knows that she could have been white trash. She could have been black. She's grateful like the Pharisee of Jesus' parable who in the synagogue prays, thank you God for not making me like this tax collector over here. So she's in a doctor's office waiting room where O'Connor develops Mrs. Turpin's character. In conversation with others, there is a respectable, decent lady who has a daughter with her who is the ugliest young woman that Mrs. Turpin has ever seen. And there's another woman there that Mrs. Turpin identifies immediately as white trash. And there is a poorly behaved child. And so over the course of this scene, 
Mrs. Turpin's disdain for some of these characters, which is couched in gratitude, becomes more and more evident, not only to the reader of the short story, but also to the ugly young woman who is silent through it all, reading her book, sometimes giving quizzical looks to Mrs. Turpin. And when Mrs. Turpin expresses the, the climax of her gratitude, her, her absolute and utter gratitude for God for making her herself, this ugly young woman takes her book and hurls it at Mrs. Turpin's face and it strikes her right above the eye, knocks her out of her chair, and then the young woman uh, proceeds to, to grab Mrs. Turpin by the throat and try to choke her. So the young woman is pulled off of Mrs. Turpin, pinned down to the floor by the doctor who had come out into the waiting room, and Mrs. Turpin eventually is able to come to enough to sit up and to look at this young woman and express her absolute bewilderment that she had behaved in this way, and the young woman says in barely a whisper, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Through the remainder of this story, Mrs. Turpin can't shake those words. She is the last person that she could possibly imagine words like that applying to. And because she could never possibly imagine anyone saying such a thing to her, those words broke right through her defenses. They spoke directly to her core, to her identity, to her sense of self, we might say, to her soul. And the revelation of this story is the ugliness of spirit that is packaged in decency and in a good disposition. Inside a hardworking, church-going lady, there is a warped and twisted soul. Now that is, for Mrs. Turpin and also for us, a fearsome kind of revelation to discover, to, to face the ugliness in our own souls. In the book of Hebrews it says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it goes on to tell us what the word of God can do. It pierces until it divides soul from spirit. Mrs. Turpin had for so long been invulnerable, impervious. Now a revelation has broken her defenses. A word has pierced her soul. Now there's a lot of confusion when we talk about a soul. And much of that confusion is due to Greco-Roman philosophy, which has given us this notion that there is a, what we call a dualism of body and soul, meaning body and soul are separate entities. I like to think of it like Peter Pan's shadow in the beginning of the Disney cartoon, where the shadow sort of is a separate thing entirely. Peter Pan interacts with it. It has a mind and a will of its own. The body is a kind of shell that contains the spirit. That's one way of thinking about it, but others of us might think the body and soul are more closely linked. Maybe some of us think we should be able to observe the soul scientifically, analyze it, measure it, describe it. Others of us just throw up our hands and say, what are we talking about when we talk about 
soul. There's a famous thought experiment that's called the ship of Theseus. Theseus was a mythical king, the founder of the Greek city of Athens. And as the story goes, Theseus rescued the children of Athens after, after slaying the Minotaur and then fled with the children aboard a ship and rescued them. And so every year thereafter, the Athenians would uh, take the same journey that he did in his ship to commemorate those events. So here's the thought experiment. Here's the question. Let's just say over so many years, this ship is sailing. It's going to need maintenance along the way. So let's imagine that over enough years, over enough time, each plank of that ship, one by one, gets changed out for a new one and replaced. At the end, once all of the pieces of the ship of Theseus have been replaced, is it still the ship of Theseus? It's a question of identity, of our identity over time. We know scientifically that eventually our body changes out all of the material, all of the tissue that makes us up, the cells that make up your constitution now, once were not part of your body, and the ones that, that were once part of your body no longer are anymore. Are you still the same person? All of that maintenance that's gone on in between then and now, has it made you a different person? Of course not. So where is the soul? Where is our identity? Is it in continuity of consciousness that we have this sort of strung together sense of ourselves? Well, what about sleep? You're not conscious when you sleep. Do you cease being yourself when you're asleep or in a coma? Do you cease being yourself. Maybe it's about our experiences and our memories, but our memories fail us. And what about someone who's struggling with dementia or Alzheimer's? Are they no longer the same person? I don't think we'd want to say that. We could go on and on, and philosophers do go on and on. But despite all of the confusion about the soul, there is for us an intuitive truth that we know deep down in our bones, and that is that there is something called me. There's something called me, and that something persists over time. It undergoes change. It might even undergo radical transformation, but it's still me. Let's call it the soul. Let's leave aside all the platonic garb uh, baggage. I almost said garbage there. Baggage, Freudian slip. And let's call it the soul. In Hebrew, the word that gets translated as soul is nephesh, which sometimes is used just to refer to creatures, to living things. It means life. It means self. It means being or existence. And in Greek, the word is psyche. That's a word you probably recognize. It means breath, but it also means life, and it means self. Let's call it the soul. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. It was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. Whatever the philosophers may say, we can say that our life, our self, our being, this something that we call me is knit into us from the very start. It is linked to both our identity and our 
purpose and maybe most importantly of all its condition the condition of our lives the condition of our souls is of great importance to the one who made us love the lord your god with all your soul love the lord your god with all yourself all your substance all your existence all your being If loving God with all of our heart touches the religious impulse in us, directs our passion, our devotion, our commitment, then loving God with all of our soul places demands upon the shape of our lives, the state of our being. It addresses our character and our integrity. It requires that we reflect on who we are and that we think hard about who we are becoming. Because our souls are always in the midst of change, of being reshaped. They're never static. They're always under construction. And our souls are shaped not by what we say is important to us, not by what we say defines us. Our our souls are shaped by our actions. Our souls are shaped by the perspectives, the attitudes that we absorb Our souls are shaped by the worldviews that we develop and that we cling to. Our souls are shaped by the media that we consume, by the ideas that we entertain and embrace, by the way that we use our time, the way that we use our energy. And it can be the hardest thing in the world to confront our misshapen souls to face honestly the ways that our very character has been deformed, to discover that we, deep down, might not be the people we imagine ourselves to be. This is why the revelation to Mrs. Turpin is so very painful. This is why she couldn't shake that ugly insult because she had never contemplated the possibility that her own soul might be out of joint. After that scene in the doctor's office waiting room, she and her husband return home and try to rest, but she can't sleep, she can't rest. She's tortured by these words, and so she walks down to the pig patio, as they called it, where she washes down the hogs, and she does it with with meanness and and a, a brashness because she is so torn up by these words, and the sun is beginning to set, and she sees a streak of light and color across the sky. And she has a vision. Here's what O'Connor writes. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak of color in the sky as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of blacks in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer they were marching behind the others with great dignity 
accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet, she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. This is the second revelation of this story. The first is the revelation of a twisted soul. The second is the revelation of a soul being refined, a soul that was once self-assured, now undergoing a kind of transformation. In his book, A Generous Orthodoxy, author Brian McLaren tells this story. Some people I know once found a snapping turtle crossing a road in New Jersey. Snapping turtles are normally ugly, gray, often sporting a slimy coating of green algae, trailing a long serrated gator-like tail and fronted by massive and sharp jaws that can damage, if not sever, a careless finger or two. This turtle was even uglier than most. It was grossly deformed due to a plastic bottle top, a ring about an inch and a half in diameter that it had accidentally acquired as a hatchling when it too was about an inch and a half in diameter. The ring had fit around its midsection like a belt back then, but now, nearly a foot long, weighing about nine pounds, the animal was corseted by the ring so that it looked like a figure eight. My friends realized that if they left the turtle in its current state, it would die. The deformity was survivable at nine pounds, but a full-grown snapper can weigh 30. At that size, the constriction would not be survivable. So they snipped the ring, and nothing happened. Nothing. Except for one thing. At that moment, the turtle had a future. It was rescued. It was saved. It would take years for the animal to grow into more normal proportions, maybe decades. Perhaps even in old age, it would still be somewhat guitar-shaped, but it would survive. This is exactly what our misshapen souls need. Release from the things that deform us and the hope of transformation and life. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. Devote your whole self, your whole being to life, to love, to beauty, to God. After seeing that vision, Mrs. Turpin is frozen in place. And here's how Flannery O'Connor ends this magnificent short story. She writes, At length, she made her slow way on the darkening path to the house. In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up. But what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. This is the third revelation, the most important revelation, the climax of this story. The world around her has suddenly come to life. The humble crickets now reflect heavenly glory. A walk down a familiar path evokes for her the journey of salvation. It is the hardest thing in the world to discover that we deep down might not be the people that we imagine ourselves to be. But when we love God with all of our soul, 
with all of our being, when we allow even our virtues to pass through God's refining fire, when that ring is snipped, when the things that deform us are named and banished, we are given hope. We are given a future. We are made alive. And the world, in all of its humble glory, comes alive around us. Let us pray. God, bring down the defenses we have built around our souls, our very being. Transform us and refine us so that we might follow you faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.